I think AI does have an extraordinary capacity to do amazing things. You look at something as simple as trying to figure out whether a mole on somebody's arm is going to turn into cancer or not. AI is vastly better than even the best trained human technicians at spotting which mole is precancerous and which is not. Biases are difficult to avoid as human beings. We all have experiences that mold our opinions of the world. And now that we're asking machines to help us out, taking basic automated tasks off of our plates, we need to ensure that those processes are as free from bias that might affect the outcome. This conversation about ethics and machine learning between journalists Jacob Ward and Salesforce's Kathy Baxter sheds light on how and where we need to address this concern. Today's episode was first released on our sister podcast, Blazing Trails, which is hosted by Michael Revo. Thanks to Michael and his team for sharing this episode. Great to have you, Jake. Thanks so much for having me. And Kathy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So Jake, let's start with you. You've been a tech reporter for many years, and you most recently written about the dangers and opportunities with AI in the loop. You know, what question did you set out to answer with the book? What I was basically looking at was, will we, by deploying AI on one another, um, inadvertently wind up amplifying ancient circuitry that we have spent really all of modern humanity trying to get away from and compensate for. And fundamentally, my question was, are we going to do to our ability to make important choices as individuals and as a society, are we going to do to that ability uh, with AI what Google Maps has done to our ability to find our way around? That was fundamentally my question here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, that's a perfect segue to introduce you, Kathy, because you're from the inside, from the Salesforce perspective and from the software industry, looking at that same issue from uh, an AI ethics perspective. So tell me a little bit about your role at Salesforce and what you do. My official title is Principal Architect of Ethical AI. My team and I, we are part of the Office of Ethical and Humane Use. And we are tasked with working with our employees to understand how do we ensure that what we are building is responsible, that we are building technology that customers and society can trust, that we are bringing better things into the world and not creating unintended consequences that we then have to work to put that genie back into the bottle. We also work with our customers to help them implement our technology responsibly because we are just a platform uh, and our customers can use our general purpose AI tools in many different ways. And so how do we give them the, the tools and the knowledge to be able to use that responsibly in the world? Mm -hmm. So Jacob, in The Loop, you write about how AI is changing the way we think. You know, it's really impacting our cognitive processes. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, we've seen it, right, certainly on a day-to-day -day basis in any form of the attention economy, right? Anytime you open YouTube or Spotify or anything else that's trying to uh, grab your attention and not let you go, you're seeing the results of, a, you know, a, a piece of machine learning typically that is um, looking at past patterns and people who are like you and trying to predict what 
they, you know, what you will like next based on what they have liked next. And then they feed uh-huh. you up the, the result, you know, so we uh-huh. see that, you know, right now on a day-to-day basis. And that feels to me like sort of the modern incarnation. You know, that's the, the, the current loop. The future loop that I'm starting to, to think about and worry about has to do with what happens when we feed those same sorts of technologies and the same profit motives into much bigger, more fundamental human things. We're seeing places now where, you know, divorced parents are being uh, mediated between by automated systems because it turns out that human uh, conflict, the arguments we get into with our exes over the care of a child, are in many ways just as predictable as uh, our taste in, you know, what video or playlist we might enjoy next. And so the same sorts of systems off the shelf that are typically picked up and, and thrown at today's sort of, a, you know, simple attention problems, problems is not the right word, right? But making money off people's attention are being mm-hmm. thrown more and more at other things. And I worry that we're going to get to a place where, you know, it's really not even going to be possible inside an institution not to use those tools because the expectation is that you're going to be uh, taking advantage of the incredible efficiency of them uh, at all times. And that we will, over time, not even it won't even occur to us not to rely uh-huh. on a, an automated system to, to and go with its recommendations because we will have convinced ourselves, and it turns out there's a huge body of psychology that shows why we would be we would tend to do this. You know, we convince ourselves that a system we don't understand knows the answer better than we do, and so um, those factors I think are going to contribute to this future kind of loop that I'm trying to articulate. Uh-huh. And Kathy, how does this play out? in the software development process. I think, you know, so many people that are involved with creating these tools are aware of it and becoming more aware of it now. But what are those conversations like? How should, you know, the folks who are making this technology be thinking about it? I think as Jacob was was speaking, one of the concepts that def- that jumped into my mind was of moral de-skilling. Uh, the more and more tasks we hand over to AI and say, you're, you're magically better at this decision making than we are. Humans are these terrible biased creatures. AI is this neutral magical machine, which we know that it's not. Uh, and we just hand more and more of these decisions, uh, not just about what's the next best movie we should watch, but, um, it, you know, should somebody be granted parole early or uh, you know, which areas of a neighborhood should there be additional policing uh, applied to it? More and more of these decisions get handed over to uh, AI. And so one of our roles is to ask that question of should this even exist in the first place? What are our red lines? So, for example, we have we decided from the very beginning we would not do facial recognition. That was a red line we've drawn. And there are other places where we decide that we are not going to allow our customers to use our AI in certain ways, either because our AI was not designed, like like purpose focused for that use case. And so we know that it's probably not going to be uh, as accurate as it should be, or for ethical reasons. We just feel like this is not something that we want AI applied to. And so we either explicitly don't create technology for those purposes, or we put in our acceptable use policy that we don't allow our customers to use our product for those purposes. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious what you've seen in terms of changes over the years with how companies are thinking about the use of AI. Are you, are you seeing more awareness around this now? 
many companies are starting to create teams like uh, like mine and those that have had teams for quite a long time, you know, many of the, the more experienced companies in AI that have had these teams for a long period of time, they are starting to pull away from some technology. So for example, IBM stepped out of facial recognition. Uh, they actually have also stepped away from healthcare AI. Um, that wasn't working very well for them. And so they decided that was an area that they were going to divest from. So I think more and more companies are either stepping out of certain areas or they're adding more safeguards. They're putting, they're spending much more time and resources into acquiring representative data sets and working on bias mitigation and harms mitigation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, Jake, it makes me think about an idea you write about in the book, which is you call it a world without choices, which is pretty powerful. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, I think it, it has to do with, uh, you know, both at an institutional level and at an individual level, right? We have already gotten to a place where, you know, when Google Maps suggests to me this route or this route, it doesn't occur to me to go any other way. And, um, you know, so we've all experienced that on a sort of individual basis. But yeah. I think at an institutional level, we're seeing it get into um, a place where where personal in agency is being diminished. I mean, as, as Kathy mentioned, mm-hmm. right, the moral de-skilling of humans is, isn't just, it's not just a sort of accidental side effect of some of these systems. It is in many ways a feature, right? It's considered a way of absolving people of difficult work, you know, either because it's tedious, right? Or in some cases, because companies actually would rather rely on an automated system to make a, a, a difficult decision than on the off-the-cuff gut instinct of somebody at the front line. And you talk to some organizational psychologists and they say, you know, if I'm going to replace a hiring manager with software, maybe that's better if that hiring manager is a, you know, uh, is racist or ageist or anything like that, right? We can make up for those biases through a system like this. That may be true, Mm -hmm. but what about a system that inadvertently picks up the general systemic inequality of of society, regurgitates it as what looks like a very neutral and sophisticated judgment, and that, Mm -hmm. you know, 24-year-old junior HR uh, representative isn't even empowered to override that system, has to go with its suggestion. And there's some, you know, there are companies that are making loans and, uh, you know, hiring decisions, you know, an entire Entirely automated process. That's the promise, right? We're we're promising to to do away uh, uh, with you know uh, with human inefficiency and save money in the process. You know, mm-hmm. I think one really powerful thing that Kathy just said there that I think is is worth kind of dwelling on is is internally a company like like Salesforce has decided, okay, we are we have these bright red lines we're not going to cross. And I and I mm-hmm. I'm so grateful that there are companies that have that perspective. But I have talked to many, many companies that do not have that perspective where you ask, you know, people who make software that is, you know, just as invasive and just as as fraught as something like facial recognition, you know, I've asked them many times, that's one of my standard questions when I talk to, to uh, entrepreneurs is, you have invented a piece of technology that is going to require more sophisticated ethics. Have you also invented the ethics to go along with that technology? And as often mm-hmm. as not, the answer is, that's not my job. 
It is the job of elected officials to regulate that. It's the job of, you know, uh, uh, somebody else, right? I'm just an engineer. This is what I make. There are also companies that, you know, actively dissuade the people that work at them from even inquiring as to what the technology they're making is going to be used for. That's a fireable offense in some uh, organizations. So for me, I, I think one of the backstops that I see coming down the road, and I'm hopeful about it. I mean, I, I like, I, I wish I had more faith in in the power of companies simply establishing their own rules or there being some kind of charter, you know, that, that companies voluntarily agree to. I want that to be the case. But I think that ultimately, given a choice between shareholder value and, and you know, this sort of technology, that shareholder value almost always wins out. And now that we're getting to that place, huge numbers of Fortune 500 companies aren't even in a position to explain how the systems work. You know, polling has shown that some of the top CTOs of those companies, you know, in one poll, 70% of them said they didn't even really care how it worked, mm -hmm. right? They just mm -hmm. wanted it to work. That's the promise of AI. You know, you don't have to think about it, right? But now I think liability law is going to make it such that people are going to have to think about it. And for me, in cases where unlike Salesforce, a company doesn't have bright red lines, I think the law is going to start establishing some as we go forward. Kathy, what's your take on that in terms of regulation, where we are now, voluntary versus government? There's so many different jurisdictions around the world, et cetera. What's the landscape right now around that? We have our eyes very much, as I think most multinational companies do, on the draft EU AI Act. It is going to be as monumental as GDPR has been in terms of data collection and data privacy. And so uh, we're very much watching it. And companies, once it's finalized, will have a couple of years to come into compliance. And any changes to that regulation, it, it is also going to be a monumental task to, to iterate on it. So I, I think in the U.S., we're seeing more point kind of solution regulations. So individual cities or states coming up with very specific regulations, forbidding facial recognition, for example, or regulations around how AI can be used in hiring decisions. It makes it difficult for a company to be able to comply with all of these different regulations, but those can be created much more quickly and they can be iterated on much more quickly. So I think within the U.S., that's probably where we're going to see the, the majority of the movement is these individual state level laws or regulations rather than federal or multinational like the EU AI Act. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for so many of us, we are using, we're end users as people working in, in business, we are end users of these systems. And many of us probably, as you say, do, are not aware of how they really work. What are some tips you have or some things we should be aware of as we're going through our day-to-day -day work lives that we can, so we can start to understand when these systems are impacting decisions that we're making, what is the data that we're seeing, et cetera? How should we be looking at this? I think one of the big challenges, and again, I think, Jake, you kind of touched on this, is how do individuals even know when AI is at play? What is the right to contestability? There is a piece in GDPR that says that uh, individuals who believe they've been harmed by an AI system have the right to redress and remediation. Well, first, you have to know that you've been harmed. And so many people, they don't even know if they haven't seen a job ad because of their race or gender. They don't know if they did see that ad, why they were never called back for an interview. Uh, and so 
I think this is a challenge for us as individuals. Uh, so first and foremost, if you are a tech employee, being very mindful about who you work for, who you give your brain power to. If your ethics do not match the ethics of that company, regardless of what the salary is, and it's very easy for me in a privileged position to make this statement, but you know, work for a company that you can feel proud is providing better things into the world than what it may be extracting from it. And then as consumers making very uh, informed decisions about who you give your attention, your eyeballs, your data to, because companies can't survive without your data. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. I was thinking about that as a, so you work in an organization and you're, you get to hire somebody, you're excited and you create the job description and you upload that to HR and income the candidates. Maybe you should be asking, Hey, how are we filtering these resumes? What systems are we using? And if you extrapolate that out into, you know, many different questions that you can ask, um, it would be interesting to see what those answers are. Maybe Jake, you can talk about that too, as you've looked at this as a reporter. It is very, very difficult for individuals, certainly at the user level, to to know anything, as Kathy says, about what is being played on or not. In some cases, you know, even people I've spoken to whose entire lives have been shaped by recommendation systems, you know, that are feeding up, um, you know, gambling apps, right, and really addictive products. The people who, you know, blow their entire life savings on those products not don't even understand that they have been targeted on Facebook based on past behavior and how it's parallel to other people's behavior, you know. So to me, it has always been one of the great frustrations of the sort of talking points of companies that say, you know, it should just be a wide open world and we don't have any real responsibility for this stuff. The sort of libertarian attitude that a lot of people have about this stuff really puts it on individuals to somehow be, you know, people often say people need to educate themselves or take responsibility for themselves. I've heard phrases like indistractable, be indistractable, that kind of stuff mm-hmm. makes me crazy mm-hmm. because all the market forces in the world are working against that. I'm extremely encouraged by something like what Kathy is saying there about how the people who make this stuff, right, the, the those prized brains that are being hired in, if those folks begin to say, you know what, maybe it's part of my job to ask how this is going to be used. Maybe it's part mm-hmm. of my job to, to really understand it um, and raise my hand when I object to it and threaten to go elsewhere. You know, that kind of stuff, that's super powerful. We could really, we could use more of that, I think, because I meet a lot of mid-level people who think it's either not their place or somehow mm-hmm. immoral for them to impose their own worldview on stuff. You know, it's that that is complicated. But I think mm-hmm. what one thing that AI is really creating for all of us, I really think that AI is, has created a new chapter in how we think about you know, what we deploy on one another. If you're deploying a system that's supposed to make us the best version of who we are or is supposed to help us make moral decisions or whatever the thing is, we have to decide what those moral decisions are. You know, in this country, we can't even decide whether somebody addicted to gambling is in control of themselves or not. That is still being argued on a daily basis, right? Our ability to, to like our understanding of ourselves and our values is all about to be adjudicated through this stuff because the technology allows us to program it in to the code, right? It, it allows us to pre-decide that stuff. And so you have this very small, very powerful set of thinkers working inside the companies deploying these systems, essentially making those decisions. And 
you know, thank God when it's Kathy. <laughs> thank God when it's Kathy and her team. <laughs> but there's not a Kathy at every company, you guys. You know what I mean? And so uh, I, I think we're in a re- the beginning of a very complicated phase of human history that we have to start get down in front of. You know, Kathy, for companies that don't have someone in a role like yours, how do you suggest that they build AI awareness into their organizations? This is definitely a, a challenge How do you turn that into processes or practices in the company? How do you think about building ethical reviews into your product development lifecycle? All of these things build over time. And so I've published this ethical AI maturity model uh, and then validated it with my peers that have had uh, teams like mine and uh, at their companies And my coworker, Yoav Schlesinger, found that Patrick Hudson, this safety, uh, international safety expert from Australia, he created this safety maturity model. And that was absolutely amazing because it maps right along with with our ethical AI maturity model that to build a company of responsible processes, whether it's security, or physical safety, or responsible AI. It follows the same kind of path of how you need to develop this muscle. No matter how well-intentioned the executives at a company might be, you can't create an ethical culture or a safe culture overnight. It takes time and incentives and processes to do it. Mm -hmm. And so where can I find the documentation? Is this in Trailhead or where do I get it? Yeah, we've got this uh, great little shrink link, sfdc.co slash all caps, E-A-I-M-M, that people can go to and check that out. And we also have some blogs and other resources that are available. I'm really proud um, at Salesforce. We also have a trailhead on the responsible creation of AI. So we have a lot of resources that we've been sharing because we that we don't see this as a competitive advantage. We really want all of the technology we're using to be ethical and, and safe. So Jake, it can't be all doom and gloom out there. What glimmers of hope do you see for us out there? Well, I want to be clear. I think AI does have an extraordinary capacity to do amazing things. I mean, you know, you look at at something as simple as trying to figure out whether a mole on somebody's arm is going to turn into cancer or not. AI is vastly better than even the best trained human technicians at spotting which mole is precancerous and which is not. So we've seen time and again places that that is is fantastic. Um, You know, for me, it is the places where we have decided to deploy AI not for profit that I am so blown away by, right? You've got people making AI systems that can try and fill in the gaps in our archaeological record to figure out what did people make between this piece of Etruscan uh, pottery and this piece of Egyptian pottery, you know, like these incredible uses of that. I mean, people, if you if you were to give the even the simplest off-the-shelf uh, GAN to a social services agency and they got to use it to, to match unhoused people with the social services available to them, right? It could be incredible. So I think there are amazing ways to use this stuff. So anyway, I take comfort from something that a a guy said to me once who was one of the architects of the Good Friday Accords, the Belfast agreements that that ended the troubles in Northern Ireland, this guy, Lord John Aldedice, who I mentioned in the book. And he points out that it took him years of negotiation to sort out where everybody in those accords was going to sit at the table, literally sit. And for me, I look at that and I think, oh, right. 
it takes a while to figure this stuff out. And unfortunately, technology moves fast. Profit moves fast. We got to move fast. But we can figure this stuff out. You know, the three of us are not sitting here smoking cigarettes right now because we figured some stuff out. It took a lot of court action to make that happen, right? But we can do it, you guys. So for me, I take some comfort from it as long as I sort of keep my time scales in mind. Okay. Well, Jake, that was super interesting. Thank you so much for joining us today. Michael, Kathy, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This was an absolute joy. 